Well, it's Wednesday night. Welcome to another edition of A Random Walk with Ben Coleman. I'm here with my uh, good friend, Josh Marcuse. He and I have known each other for, I don't know, eight or 10 years at this point. And I want to dive into what the state of defense innovation is on this conversation. So Josh, thanks so much for being here tonight. It's really a privilege uh, to reconnect in this way and excited to have, have a casual chat with you. Excellent. Well, before we dive into you know the past couple of years of your life, I want to hear more about the uh, the first organization you built in DC. I know you were a young consultant and had a vision to connect individuals uh, in the in the foreign policy space. Can you walk us through what that first organization was and what it's called? Sure. Uh, so I'm sure you're referring to Young Professionals in Foreign Policy, and yeah. that uh, is a group I'm still very proud to be involved with. I chair the board. Um, it's hard to believe that anything that we were working on 16 years ago uh, is still relevant and, and evolving and still growing. And so it, it really was uh, just a community of friends in the beginning, but it's now uh, evolved through a, a variety of different sort of iterations or permutations and, and grown to a community of over 20,000 young professionals in over 80 countries uh, organizing events pretty much almost every day, somewhere in the world, um, needing to, to connect to talk about global affairs. And so, uh, you know, the way I explain it to the other members of the group is, as you know, everything I really learned about leadership, I learned uh, by organizing this big experiment with my friends um, as, a, as a 20 nothing year old. And, uh, and then watching uh, as we, you know, have many, many brushes with, bankruptcy and legal challenges and organizational challenges so leadership transitions that people um, go through in their you know in the in the life and death of startups and NGOs and companies so anyway uh, that it really was it really was an adventure um, and and it still is since so I get to work with uh, pretty remarkable young people um and, and and folks of all ages really men mentoring young professionals around the world and, and trying to educate them and prepare them for leadership roles that's great and you know one of the things that i think binds us together is we both started organizations small with friends i remember both disruptive thinkers and defense entrepreneurs forum you know it was myself and a couple of buddies in a uh in a living room talking about you know john boy and some other folks so take us back to those early days of young professionals in foreign policy how did you think about growing and experimenting with new programming that, that grew an audience? Yeah, Ben, that is something we share, you know, and I'm, um, you know, there's a, there's a very special place in my heart for death as well, um, which of course was, was your, was your, and, and probably in some ways still is your baby. And so that, that's always been a bond that we've had. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm always been grateful to you for bringing death into the world because it is such a great community and it has a lot in common with YPFB actually. Uh, so, you know, for us, the early programming was um, really inspired by the council on foreign relations, candidly. I mean, I was, um, a very junior research assistant, almost essentially um, a, uh, you know, you know, basically almost a glorified intern starting out at the Council on Foreign Relations just out of college, um, surrounded by other young people um, that were going to the Washington think tank events. And so it was it was interesting because you you were we, our building was actually inside the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, next door to Brookings, across the street from the International Institute of Economics, across the street from SICE, around the corner from AEI, around a different corner from CSIS, and so you had this massive concentration um, at that time in two thousand and four, five, six uh, of of really Washington's top foreign policy institutions. And all of these events were designed to cater to people at the peak of their career. And the role of young people was really to hold the microphone for the older established, often retired people to be able to ask questions of the people who are literally on stage, literally being given a platform, a literal platform uh, and a microphone. And so I think a number of us were reflecting on what was going on at the world at that time. It was just a few years uh, after September 11th, my hometown of New York City was literally still lying in rubble. Um, we had invaded Af Afghanistan and Iraq. 
uh, and young people were trying to figure out what our place in history should be and how we were going to prepare for the mantle of responsibility that we knew we were going to inherit. And so we were thinking about how the world was changing before our eyes because of globalization, because of 9-11, because of the things were going on. And um, a lot of the institutions that we think of today as, as sort of helping prepare leaders to meet those challenges did not exist back then. Um, I, I joke, remember, you know, Facebook was brand new, cell phones were, smartphones had not been invented yet, cell phones were not yet widespread. It was, it, it felt different back then, I have to say. And so we were, we're asking ourselves, what do young people need to connect with each other and prepare themselves for responsibility when so much of what we see is really just heaping opportunity on the people at the moment in their lives when they need it the least mm -hmm. and depriving the people who most desperately need to figure out what they want to do with the difference they can make, right? The contribution they can make and uh, offering them such precious little guidance, such scarcity of wisdom and insight. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but in retrospect, what we were also seeing and reacting to was the profound elitism and exclusivity of the way opportunity was allocated at that time. Um, and you know, now I think we are much more aware and much more uh, mindful and cognizant of um, how these sort of opportunity diffuses through networks of people who are very similar to each other um, through a lot of unconscious bias. Um, and so we were very proud back then of having a, you know, a lot of Ivy League graduates sort of concentrated in these elite think tanks funded by philanthropists, many of whom have been educated in the very same Ivy League institutions, become successful on Wall Street, uh, you know, having had their fortunes built by the people they invested in who they went to school with, and just not mindful of that. Um, and so we, we were reacting against that in a desire to kind of democratize access to uh, self-improvement, access to learning, um, ac access to impact. And so uh, the programming began, I think, inspired by trying to mimic what we were seeing at think tanks like Brookings and CFR and CSIS and, uh, and then make it our own. And so we were um, gradually getting more and more confident about, you know, having young people moderate the discussions. And then eventually we became more confident but having young people be the experts and the presenters, not just in the audience. And then we became more confident about giving people a, a platform for writing. Um, and we started creating whole programs around helping young people publish their first byline. Um, and so now we have a, you know, a network of fellows that we, uh, and editors that help those fellows write and publish for the first time. Uh, and we have our own journal, Charged Affairs, but then we also help people publish in other publications. And so it's it really sort of became about amplifying the voices of young people uh, and, uh, and trying out a lot of different kinds of interactions. And so, you know, we had a, a period after a few years where we realized that these um, relatively small private off the record conversations that were really still organized around a speaker and an audience, a kind of intellectual call and response, um, wasn't as dynamic as just having discussions. And so we started creating these discussion groups and now there's over a couple of dozen of those discussion groups that are really just peer to peer work. And then that again has evolved uh, yet again, into uh, a platform that we just launched with Schmidt Futures just a few months ago, uh, focusing specifically on US-China issues. And that is a, a more elaborate kind of platform that pairs mentors with sort of peer advisors with discussions, uh, participants, and it's very multi-generational. So you have people that are just out of college and people who are um, you know, have 20 or 30 years of experience and it's all oriented around the future of US-China relations. And so that's over this 15 year cycle. I mean, I think that is in some ways the kind of culmination of what we've learned. Um, but I guess what I'd say that it's a very long one answer I'd say is that what you heard uh, as the subtext of what I said is that we never stopped adjusting and iterating and experimenting with, with how we wanted to do the programming. I think that was actually the takeaway that I was kind of randomly walking towards if I can like no, no. and that's exactly 
kind of what I was thinking. And, you know, again, that the parallel is very similar to the journeys and the organizations that, you know, we built together in DEF and elsewhere. And it's, it's really a playbook out of the lean startup where you just find a market and you slowly iterate, go to the customer, figure out what they want. I think the key insight that you had is, you know, maybe the young people don't want the same programming as the older guard and older generation. So let's start experimenting delivering to them what they want. Um, so, you know, you ran this kind of on the side and you look, you talk to a lot of venture capitalists or whatever, and they want someone to devote their whole life to their venture to, to make it run. But you kind of had parallel paths. So can you talk about, you know, running that venture on the side where you were also trying to, pack, you know, carve your career in, in the public sector and elsewhere? Yeah, but, I mean, Ben, that's actually a much more probing and trenchant question than you maybe you may have even realized because I did actually take a, a sabbatical from my day job to try mm -hmm. to run my PhD as a full-time job and didn't really work out for me. Um, uh, but the 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 positive spin to put on it was that it, it really enabled me to accelerate my learning to be working in consulting at Booz Allen while volunteering YPFP nights and weekends and to be able to be, you know, uh, leading uh, my peers as a volunteer while learning from, you know, you know, coaches and mentors and, and bosses and, and frankly, clients, all of whom were really in defense intelligence world. Um, and so that created uh, sort of a, a, a pressure cooker of cross-pollination um, and personal growth. But it also really limited the rate at which the organization could grow. And, and to be honest, we also were really limited by, by my own um, lack, lack of experience. And so, you know, it was really exciting to be uh, kind of, you know, by, with, and for young people but also you know there's a lot of things we did do well and didn't know how to do well and yeah. uh it was it was tough to kind of strike that balance um but at some point i decided that we just weren't going to be able to evolve any further um without full-time support and i thought this was what i was meant to do um and so i i looked to leave uh, booz allen and do ypp full-time um, which of course was was a concern, you know, for financial concern as health insurance. Mm -hmm. um, I was afraid it was a career mistake. And uh, what what a, a mentor of mine, Bill Foet, who was a VP at at Busan all the time, did was he sort of figured out a way to de-risk it for me and encouraged me to stay at Busan and take a sabbatical and do YPFP um, as a sort of you know with eighty percent of my time or so. And we tried it and it didn't work. And the reason it didn't work is because um, we weren't really changing the business model. We were just sort of doing more of the same. And so we were making uh, more revenue and we we were improving the quality of, of the you know, way that we pursued the mission, but we weren't really changing the approach. And so uh, we weren't, we weren't, getting a dramatically different outcome uh, in terms of um, the long-term sustainability of the organization. So what I realized is, you know, I was raising enough to support myself, but not really, and not really changing the paradigm. And so I knew the organization was not going to be any less dependent on me, uh, you know, as the, as the executive director or founder um, than it was. And so we made a really, really painful decision, which I thought was going to cause the organization to end. Um, to decide to go back to Booz Allen, having felt like I really failed to make YPP sustainable. And then uh, to the great credit of uh, other volunteers, um, you know, who, they they really rallied around it and they saved it and they, they made it work. And then a few years later, having gotten better at fundraising and business thinking and planning and sort of being a bit more strategic, we were able to raise enough money to hire a full-time staff person who was not me um, so that I could continue to volunteer as president uh, while this other person worked full time. And then I transitioned um, to uh, amazing volunteer president, Gary Barnabo. And eventually we had, you know, Gary as the president, me as the chairman, and we had this other person um, who was a full time staff. And, and we tried several different models um, rotating who who was paid and who was unpaid and which leadership roles went to volunteers, which leadership roles we were paying people for. We tried a lot of different things. Where we ended up today 
is um, we have a, uh, a head of the volunteer organizations, about 150 volunteers, who is a volunteer, is, is, she's the chief of staff, and we have a full-time executive director um, her name's Aubrey Cox Ottenstein, who's an amazing nonprofit leader, tremendous experience, um, you know, has been an entrepreneur, worked at USIP for many years. Uh, and so she was really just several orders of magnitude, I think in some ways more um, professionally trained and experienced for this. And then, then she's been on the role for nine months and it was really um, a dramatic change, like uh, in our ability to, you know, create sustainability and, I wish I could have figured out how to make the learning happen faster, but we just had to pivot every 18 months. Um, very painful lessons almost every 18 months, uh, trying to figure out how to get to a model that we thought would work. Um, and I think, I think we're close. Um, but what I, what it really comes down to is, is appreciating that the, the, the things that make the organization run well, are very disconnected from the content and the substance of the mission. Hmm. So disaggregating what is involved in running a nonprofit organization that has a leadership development and um, career development and professional association platform uh, is a different set of competencies than building the foreign policy leader of the future, which is our mission. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so I think we really started to evolve our thinking much more deeply. The board of directors of the organization and I, I think began to evolve our thinking about the future of the organization much more deeply when we realized that we would be able to um, achieve much more for the mission by focusing on empowering volunteers to do what volunteers do best and being able to hire full-time staff to run the nonprofit organization in a more professional way um, and to create appropriate dependencies and, and linkages between those two nested business models, but not attempt for the business model to be the same. Hmm. And then what we discovered beyond that was for that to be financially sustainable, the platform that supports the community building needs to be able to support financially more than one volunteer-driven community because you have to get an economy of scale um, to make the return on investment sort of close the circle. So my, my vision for young professionals in foreign policy in the future is that it is actually returned to its original state as an all volunteer organization, the way it was 15 years ago, that is just driven by, fueled by the enthusiasm and the passion of young people who are learning how to become leaders through this experiential learning. Yeah. And that, that is yeah. viable for them because they have a lot of the hard, frustrating, annoying parts of running a nonprofit organization uh, operated for them almost like an as a service, like infrastructure as a service for nonprofit organizations by a, by a different group that is the platform. And so we're trying to figure out how to take gradual steps so that we, in, in an essence, replatform YPFP as an all-volunteer organization that runs on an, a, a, you know, a fully grown-up NGO that is able to support multiple communities of young people who are passionate about things that are related to global affairs. And I, I'm, I'm, if we can do that in the next two years, I think YPP will survive for another another decade or two or three. Um, yeah. Because we can keep evolving as young people's preferences and goals and wishes and predilections and interests change. Um, they can focus on volunteering in a way that's meaningful to them, emotionally, intellectually, professionally, and choosing their successors. And we can we can deal with you know membership CRM. We can do insurance. We can do tax. We can do legal. We can do fundraising. Yeah. We can do things that twenty three year olds to twenty eight year olds don't want to do. Um, and, uh, and 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 you know I think it took seven or eight nonprofit communities under my belt for me to realize that because you know I also did deaf with you 
but I worked on Federal Innovator Network, um, and I worked on Truman National Security Project, and I, I had, you know, various different people coming to me for advice about how to run these, um, you know, young young emerging leader organizations. I did stuff with think tanks like CNAS and CSIS, and like it took exposure to a variety of these to start to figure out what the patterns were, just like a, just, just like a venture capitalist would. Yeah. Um, I was not able to really see those patterns as a, you know, 25 year old doing it as a, as a side hustle. Yeah. Well, something you said really resonates with me and, you know, I chose to step back from deaf leadership probably five, three or four years ago now. And the reason was I felt out of touch with what was needed for the younger contingent. And someone who was in the mix, you know, Mike Madrid leads the organization now, needed to run it because he inherently understood what was happening. You know, guys like Jim Perkins and others were in the military still doing it. And I think a lot of nonprofits especially are almost ego trips for the founders, and they just want to hold on and have it be their thing. Um, but the, the key to growth, this is one lesson I've learned in volunteer organizations anyway, is to let go and let the volunteers and their passion shine through. And that can be a hard thing to do, but it actually gets that you know exponential growth uh, elbow uh, in process. And you know, you know, you, you talked about some of the challenges you face, but to have an organization survive for fifteen years is is no no mean feat. Like that, that's pretty rare. Um, and so, you know, what do you attribute aside from maybe the the volunteer driven or passion of the people to that fifteen year legacy that's that's endured at this point? I think I think a big part of it was that just like you said, I figured out when to step back from the day to day. Um, I'm still probably more involved in the day to day life of the organization than I should be. Um, sometimes more than I want to be, sometimes less. Um, but we really did invest a decade ago in building other sources of leadership, other leadership pipelines. Um, whether it was hiring leaders or recruiting them, we, we did really find a way to make it, um, I think with each passing year, less about me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, I mean, it, and it is a little bit, as you said, a little bit of narcissistic injury when you meet members who they don't know who <laughs> I am or the volunteers don't know who I am. Um, and uh, you just have to take that in stride and, and, and take it, as you said, it's, it's, a, it's a compliment to the longevity of the organization and, and you just sort of... Um, uh, it gives it gives you a good opportunity to, to practice humility, um, but you know at the same time also um, you know certainly donors want to talk to founders and they want to know that you're involved and you're engaged. So so I think I think managing the the succession planning and the transition planning um, is definitely a foundational key to success. I think another issue for us was. Uh, being willing to adapt and having some agility with programming. I mean, there are certainly things that I remember just out of nostalgia that I miss um, and I wish we would return to because it was the organization I grew up with. And so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm often biting my tongue and allowing it to evolve to whatever it needs to be and not uh, always indulging in the urge to say like, well, that will never work because we tried it these three times and this is what happened. And I know everyone experiences the urge to want to share that. Um, and, you know, so there you have to walk a fine line between passing on the wisdom and letting people try things on their own. And so I think, uh, a lot, I think a second key element is adapting, including big changes to the mission statement. Um, you know, big, you know, no, things that are not necessarily trivial and, and being willing to try some bigger ideas, um, such as, um, what I was talking about earlier about the sort of replatforming model inversion kind of ideas. I mean, then the third thing was, is, you know, we did choose something that I think was perennial. I mean, foreign policy, national security, uh, global affairs, what we think about as tri-sector leaders, not just diplomats, but being an organization that is, as we are, one-third private sector, one-third nonprofit academia, one-third people in government, um, and people from around the world. I mean, we are continuing to be, as we always have been, um, morally and intellectually challenged by what is going on in the world. And so I think we did know that if we could figure out a way to tap into young people's hunger 
to improve the world around them, we would remain relevant. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think it's, you know, I think it's probably those three things. And then the last thing, uh, which I'll say, and I say this because I know you have a lot of other entrepreneurs and, and sort of founders that, that follow your conversation, is we stayed really lean. Um, you know, we are, our operating, our operating budget is low. Um, we don't raise a ton of money and we don't spend a ton of money. Um, and that time that other organizations would have spent entirely on just sort of managing the constant churn and demands of foundations and philanthropy and donor cultivation, um, we, we don't do as much of that. Uh, and I think that leaves a lot of mental energy uh, freed up for, um, you know, keep trying to keep 100 to 200 young people engaged as volunteers. If we paid them, that would be a couple of million dollars Right. a year and labor costs and because we've never had more than two employees um and always relied on this hybrid model of volunteers and turned that um turned that bug uh, into a feature um you know that i think that insight early on that this was a leadership laboratory where experiential learning takes place where young people are entrusted with responsibility um, beyond their imagination and can achieve things beyond their imagination with the responsibility that, to which they're entrusted. Um, that idea turned our financial uh, weakness and frankly, my ineptitude as a fundraiser into a strength where it forced us to continue to continue in, you know, investing in young people. And so that the next step for us is to double down on that and invest in that and really have much more deliberate leadership development curriculum. And we, we recently ran an experiment, um, which I, which I sent an email about, but you know a little bit about it. We recently ran an experiment with a group of veterans, um, to see what, working with the McChrystal group to see whether we could really package and, and trap in a bottle, um, some of those insights about leadership development. And that's, I think another one of these really important kind of lean startup experiments about our future to see whether or not we can kind of find the secret sauce and make it a little more repeatable and scalable. And I'll let you know when we get the survey results back from the participants, <laughs> but we were pretty happy with how it turned out. Obviously, McChrystal Group's a pretty amazing outfit. So. Yeah, no, they are. And that's a great program to put together. So I want to twist the conversation more towards your work in the public sector now. You know, our friend Adam Grant has called uh, the government the place where innovation goes to die. And yet you went there and had some pretty significant impact, even beyond what you did with the Defense Innovation Board. So what was your transition to government like and what first inspired you to start thinking about it differently when you were there? Um, I, I mean, you know, I love Adam Grant and there's no one I admire more. And he certainly uh, makes makes me feel like such a profoundly uh, un, un, underachieving individual since he's around our age, which is horrifying to me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, having said all those nice things about Adam, he could not be more wrong uh, about that statement about government. Um, uh, it just isn't true. I mean, it, innovation is stifled in the government. Um, and it is a challenge, but you and I both know a lot of the courageous people in the government that actually are truly innovating, not just, um, not just innovating the way government delivers services, but I think really inventing truly new ideas that have transformational impact, um, that we would consider disruptive innovation measured against any, any yardstick, including, you know, what, whatever the hottest companies are um, that are getting venture, you know, venture backed investment. And so uh, I think Adam um, is correct about diagnosing the challenges, but I'm the very fierce defender of my, of my fellow government workers um, or former fellow workers. You know, the transition for me was really uh, born out of the YPFP experience. So it does make for a nice segue. The short version of it is, is that uh, a particular leader, Michelle Flournoy, um, came into government uh, and was uh, serving as the Undersecretary of Defense for policy uh, at, the, and, uh, at the beginning of the Obama administration. And she was a passionate believer in investing in the workforce. Um, and so she brought in McKinsey, your firm, to do a great organizational health assessment. She created a human capital task force that a lot of, you know, really, really talented foreign policy and defense analysts ended up joining this human capital task force for a year and a half. Um, and she, she really made a priority 
of human capital in a way that really I've never seen any other defense leader ever really do that to the extent that she mm -hmm. did. And as she was getting ready to transition out of government, um, she had created a team called the Leadership and Organizational Development Team. And uh, she put a really, really gifted, um, and I, I think pretty pretty unusual temperament-wise, um, seasoned uh, OSD policy leader, Beth Flores, in charge of, of that Leadership and Organizational Development Team. Um, and, uh, and Beth brought this incredible energy to it um, you know, she always used to say, you know, about th things that you never heard in government, like bringing your whole self to work. And, um, and she, she, she wanted a, a partner, a thought partner for her, um, to think about, you know, how to establish this leadership and organizational development organization where there never had been one, or frankly, I've never really seen an organization like that in, in the office of the secretary of defense or, or really very many places in government. So uh, because she knew about young professionals in foreign policy, Beth invited me to come into government to help her stand up this LOD team, um, which I was eventually able to do. And so I spent four years um, uh, in OSD policy. Uh, you know, Beth was there for the first few years and then, you know, the leadership of the team evolved. But, you know, I really felt like I was a leader in this LOD team trying to bring new ways of thinking into OSD policy where policy and strategy decisions were being made and from there trying to spread some of these new ideas um, more broadly throughout the department as a whole and that was really when when our paths crossed um, when I started you know was looking for other pockets of innovation and new thinking and discovered the the magic of the crick um, and the people that from across Navy who were attracted to the crick and attracted to um, the really the manifesto that you wrote um in the uh in the disruptive thinkers piece and so um for us what it really came down to was not thinking just about leadership development and organizational development but we sort of self-styled into an innovation team um before that was a buzzword mm -hmm. and so we uh, I very formatively wandered, very formative experience. I wandered into the basement of the of the OPM building and discovered what was became known as the Innovation Lab at OPM. Uh, later, just the Lab at OPM, and there I was taught design thinking by Abby Wilson, who was a Luma instructor, and that really changed my life. Uh, you know, I was I suddenly saw that there was a different way of making decisions and analyzing information and being creative. And I realized this is what I need to bring back to the Pentagon. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I never looked back. I mean, I sort of, you know, playing with sticky notes kind of became my personal brand. And um, you know, from there, we uh, got heavily engaged in StrengthsFinder work with Gallup, and bringing StrengthsFinder and design thinking to the Pentagon became, you know, something I invested a lot of time in. And that was kind of how. I got on the innovation kick, but what was really important to this is technology had nothing to do with it. Right. Absolutely. Uh, it, you know, I had zero technical background. <laughs> no one was talking about software or computer AI or any of that. Um, it all really began with trying to help teams be more, um, more critical thinkers, help teams be more collaborative and try to bring creativity uh, into the policymaking process. Uh, and that involved everything from, you know, bringing in Jacqueline Overkotz to talk about social entrepreneurship to bringing in Daniel Kahneman to talk about unconscious bias and decision science. And, uh, and that did lead eventually to Adam Grant and his work um, and Dan Pink and, uh, you know, his, his, his book Drive is one of my favorite books and was really a guide there. And, and then most of all, we discovered the literature on psychological safety. Um, and you know now uh, a lot of the a lot of the a lot of the conversations I'm leading with federal workers and, and government workers about innovation are more than anything else about um, Everett Rogers and the innovation adoption curve and psychological safety uh, and the sort of confluence of those ideas of understanding what it really takes to change organizations uh, and so anyway that that was kind of what the journey but. It, it began with YPFP, um, and just on a personal note, because I think it is it is worth worth noting. You know, the motivation for me to do all of this was September 11th. 
Um, and I could not find a way to get a job working in the government. Um, first I tried to join the Marine Corps and it didn't work out. And then I tried to get recruited by the intelligence community and it didn't work out. And I ended up uh, on Massachusetts Avenue, um, not because I wanted to work at the Council on Foreign Relations, but because I had failed at all of my other attempts to try to do government work. And so um, 9-11 led to YPFP, but it also, YPFP led to my finally being able to get a job in government, the job that I'd always wanted since September 11th, 2001. And I started that work on September 11, 2012. My first day in the Pentagon was 9-11. Wow. Um, nine years later, all, all in these unexpected ways in which it wove together, um, you know, these different life experiences and organizations and, 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 and the communities of people that formed around um, those, those, you know, epic historic challenges and the beliefs that they implanted in people as a result. We're trying to figure out how to respond and adapt. Yeah. You know, something you said, a lot of goodness there um, that really strikes me is, is the concept of psychological safety. And I think one of the things both you and I have seen in our experiences is there are pockets of innovators all over. And I think before the advent of social media and the internet and other connectivity tools, these folks felt like they were alone. And until, and once they found these new communities and they came together and had five, 10, 50, 100 people that were like them, they all of a sudden blossomed and, and had these, these life-changing experiences and wanted to promote creativity within the government. So with that in mind, what are the characteristics you've seen that make for effective innovators in bureaucracy, specifically government? Because um, my sense is that there's a different mindset and a different psychological makeup for an innovator in Silicon Valley, an innovator in the government, but they, they both are equally effective in their organizations in different yeah. ways. So what have you seen that makes an effective military or government innovator? Yeah, I think so. Uh, there was a term uh, coined in the 1960s of intrapreneur, which is much less popular than the than it's the sister, uh, now an entrepreneur. But that is the difference, right? The, the people in government are intrapreneurs. Um, they are operating inside a large and for the most part closed system. Um, they are operating inside a system of constraints, but like entrepreneurs, they make ideas happen with other people's money. Um, and, uh, you know, they, ha they have to sell a vision. They have to get buy-in. They have to motivate and drive action. They have to, it, they have to build measure tests. They have to learn and they have to iterate. Um, so it is a lot of the qualities of entrepreneurship. Um, but they're not uh, outside creating an organization from nothing. They have to operate inside the, a, a very circumscribed context. Um, and it's and for the most part, it's a pretty different context uh, than than what an entrepreneur would face. And, and you know, the other difference, of course, is um, you know there are many, 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 many small business owners. There are only so many entrepreneurs. Uh, and the difference also applies to government as well. You have a lot of people are constantly improving the way their team functions, right? They are, they are definitely doing their job better and they're helping other people around them do their jobs better. And they may be critical thinkers. They may be creative. They may even be disruptive, but they're the equivalent of a small business owner. The entrepreneur is focused on scale. And the entrepreneur must also be focused on scale. And so the leaders I've seen that have made the most impact in government um, have a theory of change, have a vision of how they believe what they're doing is going to have a massive impact um, well beyond themselves. Yeah. And uh, if you can marry up the, the, the tactic with the vision and evolve that into an adaptive strategy, those people transform organizations and others just improve their base, their squadron, their unit, um, but they don't have those systems level effects. And the systems level effects come from an idea that, that um, I mentioned this at a, at a Defense Innovation Board meeting and it really resonated with the board members and the idea was um, tactical actions with strategic effects. Mm. And um, a good example of a tactical action with a strategic effect is um, making an example uh, work and making that working example famous. Mm -hmm. 
And so a lot of people are trying to approach the problems of change at scale by trying to go after the policy because they think that the power flows down from above that are trying to figure out top-down strategies of change, leveraging the authority that the leadership has and thinking that they can't make change happen without harnessing or leveraging or somehow borrowing the power, authority, or influence of senior leaders. And my message is often the opposite, which is it's usually figuring out how to engineer grassroots change and creating what appears to be a groundswell of support for something, but is but it is actually an orchestrated campaign of identifying leaders that are in what you know John Carter would call your change coalition at multiple levels and creating those systems level effects by being able to work the corners and the angles. And like my favorite example of this is the software revolution that swept over the Department of Defense, which was highly opportunistic in the first six months and became very deliberate and very strategic in the three following years. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so we found an example of a piece of software that could be better, better executed by a team of four engineers than by a, you know, massive systems integrator defense contractor. We figured we could do it at 1% of the time and 1% of the money. But we knew that the difference between fixing a software application in the Middle East and transforming the department was about how the idea of software change diffuses mm -hmm. through the system. And so it was the combination of, you know, multiple visionary leaders, some very junior, some very senior, seizing an opportunity, and then realizing that we could, we could use the NDAA to, to have the Defense Innovation Board write a report that would tell the story and offer the blueprint. And then that helped create a wave of software factories. Um, there were so many people in the Department of Defense who knew everything there was to know about agile software development before we got there. Yeah. Um, you know, we didn't invent that, but we were able to tell the, the story in such a convincing way. We were able to empower a lot of people who had been toiling in obscurity um, and then you know, I think that really had systems level impact. Um, but if we didn't have an example of an actual app that had been shipped, you know, I don't think anyone would have paid attention to the report. You know, what's striking about that, and I think that's spot on, is just this week, um, the, the N4 of the Navy, the Vice Admiral of Naval Logistics, released a memo authorizing the creation of a supply database for 3D printing. And I couldn't help but laugh when that came out because five years ago, that was one of the first projects that Crick undertook. And yep. 3D printing was something that, you know, the research labs have been doing for 20 years. But to your point about finding a tangible example, we put a small printer on the USS Essex. And the story that made it in Navy Times was not about this cool widget, but it was about empowering sailors. And the story that caught the attention of Admiral Cullen at the time. And through the hard work of guys like Chris Wood and all these other senior leaders to push it through, it was that catalyzing moment of, of knowing how to manipulate the system and tell stories that got technology um, to the place where it sits at right now. And you know, I think I think we're seeing right now a golden age of innovation within the Department of Defense because individuals are connecting with each other and realizing they can apply these techniques to their specific uh, their specific areas of, of influence. And this the network effect just compounds when you combine the power of social networks and young people and the authority that senior leaders have who are hungry for change. Um, it's really pretty exciting. And I think it's a great transition point to talk about your work on the Defense Innovation Board because you were doing a lot of this work kind of trying to bridge the high and the low. So can you talk to us about what the Defense Innovation Board was, how it formed, and you know how you ended up being the first director? Sure. Uh, so, um, you know, Ash Carter, uh, as Secretary of Defense, probably did more uh, than most in recent memory to try to build the, the infrastructure, if you will, uh, of innovation in the department. He was best known for um, Defense Digital Service and Defense Innovation Unit, and he elevated SCO, and he you know, was a big supporter of InQtel and, and a number of other things, and uh, launched Force of the Future. Um, which, you know, I had the opportunity to be part of. And, um, you know, I think sort of like the final stroke in the canvas, right? He was painting the final brush strokes where he wanted to 
create an institution that would continue to tend um, the the garden that he had built, right? He wanted it to continue. Um, and so I think he had this idea of having an advisory board for future secretaries um, to help bridge bridge the divide and, and connect them to perspectives from, um, you know, modern modern commercial software industry, modern modern internet companies, modern AI companies, and you know, Silicon Valley was a big part of that, but it wasn't Silicon Valley only. And he turned to Eric Schmidt, who at that time was executive chairman of Alphabet, the recently stepped down CEO of Google, um, to be his partner in this endeavor and to be the first chair uh, of this board. And and that was really a prescient choice because I can't imagine a better leader for this than Eric Schmidt. Um, mm-hmm. he, he, he truly was a visionary uh, about not just where the department had to go, but how to influence the department. Um, and uh, he truly deeply patriotic, obviously an amazing technologist um, and, and business executive. And I was really very fortunate that he you know, was able to become a mentor um, and we were able to do this partnership together. So, um, so you know, Carter, Carter wants to establish this board. Schmidt agrees to do it, but they need someone to manage it internally. Um, and I, I think that it was a sort of right place, right time. I had I had been working on uh, sort of innovation themes for Force of the Future, personnel reform issues, um, and that had gotten I think some notice uh, on the in the secretary's front office. And I knew a couple people there who had, you know, patiently listened to my uh, tirades from time to time. Uh, about uh, different things I thought were you know, were going wrong. And uh, so I think they sort of thought that I had a kind of um, irreverence, uh, but, um, but, but dedication that was perhaps like a winning combination to be a Sherpa for Eric. Um, uh, I think there's sort of a sense that, and this was, I think this was very uh, insightful on their part, that you sort of needed a loyal opposition kind of mindset um, and I think they saw that, you know, Eric wanted to be, uh, uh, to use Hondo Gertz's uh, phrasing, he wanted to be a good rebel. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, from the vantage point of being sort of one foot in, one foot out. And, th- and they sensed, I think, and I give them a lot of credit for this, um, that, you know, er- Eric, Eric would, have, would have needed a kind of good rebel partner inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, after a little bit of cajoling, I did agree. I agreed to do it, but I agreed to do it on the condition that they give us two jobs. Um, one was, you know, we'll run a federal advisory committee, which is an immense amount of restriction and red tape. Um, but we would also run a sort of special projects team that would have an opportunity to work directly with leaders in the department to implement some of these ideas. Uh, and that, I think, was really what made the Defense Innovation Board stand out, um, because we did more, so much more than just write reports. Um, we visited over 60 locations in nine countries. We met with over a thousand uh, service members, and not just three stars and four stars. I mean, we met with junior enlisted folks and junior officers, and we walked the flight line, and we, you know, went into the engine room, and we, we really. Um, got to know, uh, I got to know in, in like a visceral way, sort of what were the themes of ex, of lived experience, and almost the ethnography, almost the ethnography of the innovation ecosystem, so that we could pattern match ourselves and sort of see the trends. And I think what a lot of people didn't appreciate about how valuable it was is that you know Eric was such a student of the department. He really started to get to know it. Um, uh, because of all these trips, you know, and he had the clearance to get the briefings and he visited everyone and he spoke to everyone and he didn't just sit in the Pentagon. He really went to all these places, um, you know, uh, off the coast, you know, aircraft carrier off the coast of, um, you know, you can imagine where and, uh, and we went, you know, visited our forces in South Korea and like, you know, we went to visit almost every combatant command. And so the combination of everything that he learned in decades of experience in tech, combined with really understanding the department, it allowed him to make these connections that just had not really happened before. 
Um, you know, so many people from the Valley that got to know the department really um, had a superficial understanding of it. So, so their recommendations were somewhat superficial. Um, you know, I think Eric brought a depth of experience in both worlds. And then my job was to like turn his insights into real changes. And then I think that, you know, we did have some wins. So it was a good, it was a good four years. Yeah, so what were some of those wins that you guys had? Um, I mean, the, the thing that, that uh, I'm most proud of, um, apart from the software revolution, which we talked about, is, uh, is really getting the department to focus on artificial intelligence. Um, you know, DOD have been investing in AI for decades. Um, and uh, it was really difficult to sort of figure out how to get organizational focus on that. Um, and I think we did. Um, and I think, the, you know, one of our first recommendations, recommendation number five, was to establish a center for artificial intelligence. The establishment of the Joint AI Center um, and certainly the experience with Project Maven as well um, really did move the needle for the department. Um, and we, we wrote an AI strategy. We helped, you know, Brendan McCord, phenomenal job with that. We helped him with that. Um, and, you know, we helped Jack Shanahan launch the Jake. We, we did a lot of things. And, and the most important thing we did in AI, I think, was to write um, a draft of DOD AI ethics principles, which the Secretary of Defense signed out almost word for word. Um, and so the combination of uh, understanding what the department needed to do with data, cloud, machine learning, AI strategy, creating an organizational structure to facilitate that, um, helping components like USDI and services like Air Force to actually launch applied AI projects, and then putting a moral, ethical, and frankly, a political framework um, around the adoption of AI for warfare in democracies that respect human rights, individual liberty, and human dignity, um, created a different path for the West to take on this new era of warfare, um, to really drive adoption, but to do so in a thoughtful way. And um, that I thought you know, I think there's a very good chance, Ben, that in, I will work for the next 40 years and continue to look back on that as being a crowning achievement. Um, that, that's how much it meant to me personally to be involved in that. Uh, I, think it, I think it's a technology, the potential of which we are only scratching the surface. And um, it's essential we do it in a uniquely American way that, we, that is really consistent with our constitution and our values. And I hope that we were, we were able to articulate um, what it would look like to do that. We couldn't do it for the department, but we could show independently, this is what a group of experts with a lot of experience in this field thinks it would look like. And the fact that it was so embraced by the leaders of the department, um, really quickly embraced and fully embraced, I think speaks volumes about the integrity and the character of the people that they chose to adopt this emerging technology in this way um, with, with the best of intentions. Um, so I thought I thought that was significant. Absolutely, it's charting the path forward for the future. I mean, it's, it's super remarkable. You know, one of the headlines that's you know front and center is, at least in the media, is that Silicon Valley and the DoD have an adversary relationship. You hear tech companies, you know, folks walking out. In your experience and visitations of those places, how do you view the relationship? And is there a common ground that can be found between Silicon Valley and, and the Pentagon? There's so much common ground. Uh, you know, I think we, it's human nature to exaggerate the differences. And obviously you can grab a lot of headlines talking about walkouts, um, but uh, there's really a lot in common. Um, and, and I did uh, figure out some, some ways to, to really foreground what they have in common. And for one thing, um, you know, these are, these are largely people that, you know, join their profession to make the world a better place. Um, you know, sure, entre entrepreneurs like to make money, but most of the people that I'm talking to are talking about the impact of their companies, um, and they and that is important to them. Um, they both are. They both believe that technology is the fourth for good in the world, um, which is not a view that everyone shares. Um, they uh, they think strategically, uh, you know, and they're and they're super competitive, right? These are these are uh, what you know. These are athletes in a sense, right? I mean, they are competitive people. Um, who want to push themselves. And so uh, I definitely think that you can find a lot of common ground. Um, there are strong cultural and political differences as well. Um, 
And we can, and I, you know, I have a, a whole presentation I give that highlights what those differences are, but there's no question that there's common ground. Um, and, you know, I think we need to find ways to find and hold that common ground um, by emphasizing those similarities more um, than we do, because a lot of the antipathy of these groups is lack of familiarity. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I interacted with representative sort of constituents of these groups who were describing to me the views of, of the other, and I should say that with air quotes, the other, right? Um, they never met uh, mm -hmm. you know, or spent time with each other. Um, and I really would like our society to find a way to create opportunities for more of that mixing. Um, air Force Ventures has launched a rotation program like that. And I, I think that's an example of like a fantastic program where you know, O4s and O5s are, are spending six weeks at venture capital firms. And like, if we could only 10X that. Um, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about um, our ability to overcome these differences. What people fail to understand is that they think that the limitation, the limiting factor comes from an unwillingness of entrepreneurs and venture capitalists and technologists to work with the department. And that is false. The limiting factor is the, the DOD's inability to absorb their new ideas and their new technology. Mm -hmm. It is not a supply side problem. It is a demand side problem. So we, we, the Department of Defense will have as much relationship with Silicon Valley and tech industry as it chooses to. We are the ones that are limiting it because our absorption capacity is so low because of our ignorance, because of our policies, because of our processes. Um, we, would, we can create massive markets that people will respond to if we get out of our own way. Um, and it's, it's frankly, it's intellectually lazy to think that it is the political objections of a small group of engineers that is the thing that is blocking progress. It is really much more about the work DOD needs to do on itself um, than trying to change anything that's going on in the business community. And uh, I tried very hard to make that argument and I, I think I convinced a very small number of people, but I, <laughs> I haven't given up yet. So if you could wave a magic wand, what's one thing you would change on the internal government processes towards absorbing these new markets that could be possible? Uh, well, um, I saw a question from from Judd Arnold, uh, and so this is an answer to your question and to Judd's question. Um, the the one thing I would change is the PPBE process. I mean, if you still have that acronym for uh, the policy budgeting yeah. budgeting execution process, essentially, the way that Congress and the executive branch and DOD work together to write five year budget plans. Um, that is a system. That, is, that has been preserved almost intact since it was invented by Robert McNamara, um, you, know, you know, when most of our grandparents were alive. Mm -hmm. And it is stunning to me that we have done very little to improve upon that process in the intervening time. Consider how many Moore's Law cycles it takes to write a requirement, uh, award a contract, and see um, a result. And so, uh, I, I refer to this whole idea as, as essentially it is the anti-innovation. Because if you have to plan out everything you're going to build five years in advance, plan all your requirements in advance, plan all of your contract processes in advance and determine how much everything is going to cost and allocate that budget out to a penny and then justify it to four committees of Congress, um, where is there room to pivot? Yeah. Where is there room to learn? Where is that room to experiment? You've ground out all opportunities for anything unexpected or opportunistic to happen. Mm -hmm. And how are you supposed to innovate if you cannot learn? How are you supposed to innovate if you cannot seize an opportunity? How are you supposed to deviate from away from a disastrous course of action if you can't pivot? And so by forcing us to tell everyone what we're going to do five years in advance, there's no more room for agility or creativity. So that is the one process that is going to change, and there's no appetite to change it because there's so many interdependent political um, forces 
that uh, it, there's very little room to maneuver or adjust between the authorizers, the appropriators, the joint staff, and you know it, it's its processes with JSID and OSD, its oversight with ANS. There's very little flexibility, but all of the interesting and good things that have happened have happened in places where we are able to achieve just a little bit more flexibility. I don't think other transaction authorities are, you know, miracles but they have created a little bit of permission to experiment and a little bit of flexibility. And then people have taken that little bit of flexibility and done remarkable things with it. If you could offer more of that flexibility in other ways, I think you'd see more experimentation and you'd see more positive results. Yeah. yeah you're speaking truth, brother. Uh, and it's inspiring to hear you talk about this. I feel like we're just getting started and yet we're already elapsed an hour. So I want to, I want to leave one last question to you. And it's who are the, the rising stars in DOD innovation that people may not know right now, but that you think are making a big difference in the department that you want people to know about? Um, you know, I would, uh, I, would, I would definitely mention Naval X. Uh, I, I think that what they've done, the Center for Adaptive Warfighting, is very similar to what we were trying to do with um, the Leadership and Organizational Development Office back in the day. It reminds me of Illuminate um, and what uh, what those young sailors were trying to do to bring design thinking. You know, they're, they're focused perhaps a bit more on Scrum uh, and some lean startup than design thinking, but design thinking is part of it. But, you know, they have chosen to focus on human capital and organizational learning as being yeah. the vector, not the tech. And that, I just think, is basically at a philosophical level, correct. Um, and I, I just appreciate that they're trying to accelerate organizational learning and adaptation, and that I think is amazing. Um, I love uh, our friends at Ensign and Morgan Plummer and that whole crew. Um, again, very focused on human capital, on learning, on iteration, on, on creating those tools and platforms. I think, I think their work's great. Uh, and, uh, and then I would say, you know, Every, everywhere that you see people doing software differently is is not far away from sort of that epicenter of that that network of people. I and mean, there's just a tremendous number of examples in the Air Force. Uh, and, you know, Kessel Run is the most popular, but Kessel Run is just one. You know, everything with Platform One, uh, Space Camp, Kobayashi Maru, all, you know, Bespin, all those, all those groups, I think, also are part of that growing movement. And I think the most exciting thing that I've seen in the last two years probably was the Ar the Army Futurist Command announcement that they're also going to build a, a software factory. Because mm -hmm. if you think about the diffusion of these ideas, right, it's like not that hard for the Air Force to do it for a few years. And the Air Force, you sort of expect that from the Air Force to their great credit. Yeah. But you think, you know, if it doesn't, if it doesn't manage to survive a few leadership changes in the Air Force, and it doesn't spread to the other services, it will look back on that moment in time as being like, well, there was that time, you know, in the in in the late, you know, teen, you know, twenty teens when like the people tried all this stuff and then it died. Um, and so I think if we're able to show that actually the progress in the Air Force is irreversible, and then the Army is going to pick it up, and then the Navy is going to pick it up, and then OSD is going to pick it up, and civilians are going to be coding, that that means that you can't really revert. So I would look to those young people for sure. Um, in particular, you know, I was really inspired by our visit to Tatooine, which is the DDS location in Fort Gordon, Georgia, which also, you know, is connected to Army. Um, because, because I was really, really inspired to see it happening in, in Georgia, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone expects it to happen around Stanford. But to listen to what community college presidents uh, we're doing to create the cyber workforce of the future for pennies on the dollar compared to what that, you know, that degree would cost at MIT or, or uh, you know, a more prestigious school. You know, I, it just, it totally changed the way I think about the future of human capital. And I realized that, you know, this blended learning for, for uh, accessible uh, amount of money for a skill that people really, really are going to need and it's in short supply, um, is really powerful. And, you know, if you're graduating from one of the, you know, an Augusta community college um, with a degree in cyber, maybe you're not gonna get a job at Amazon, Microsoft, or Google tomorrow, but you're gonna have so many better career prospects than you had without that. 
You are going to be contributing to the mission in a really important way. Um, you are you are contributing to um, the I think the spread of STEM across our society, and you're able to do it at large volumes, right? Mm -hmm. Tens of thousands of students a year meeting the needs that we're going to need for jobs of the future. So it really changed the mindset from more elite to thinking about you know how do we reinvent community colleges to be drivers of STEM education to meet not just the you know, the, the 0.001% quality, you know, AI engineers, but thinking about actually the volume that we need to meet these needs. And so like, I think, you know, it was brilliant to build that DDS satellite location in the heart of that ferment to get access to that talent, um, to make it affordable, to make it accessible. And I think that was like a powerful, uh, and, and, and for me, as you can tell, inspirational, way to think about um, how America can can solve our tech talent crisis. Yeah, you only just maybe want to go back to the, uh, the recruiter's office and sign up dotted line again, get back into the game. There'll, Josh, be, a time, there'll be a time for both of us to go back, Ben, I look forward to that, it. That's the truth. Well, Josh, thanks so much for all you've done for our country and the great overview of what's happening with defense innovation. Hope we can connect again soon. Thanks for all the listening tonight. Thanks for listening to a random walk. We'll see you next week. Cheers. Bye-bye. Take care.